So even though I've already read it, I'm going to read it to you again. Psalm 119, starting at verse 164. It is the longest chapter in your Bible. King David writes these words. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord. I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I love your precepts and your statutes, for all of my ways are known to you. So these powerful words of Scripture state categorically that if I obey God's commands and refuse to treat them simply as suggestions, if I actually do them, God promises I will not get tripped up and fall on my face. Let's be honest. There's some commands of God that I like, and the reason that I like them is because when I'm obedient to them, things go very, very well for me. There are certain commands that I like. Grant, do not commit murder. No problem with that one. When I don't kill somebody, things go well for me. That's just the way it works. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. No problem with that one for me. If you meet my wife, she's an unbelievably easy person to love. That one's no problem. No, no, no trip-ups there. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Love that one. No problem obeying that particular command for two reasons. I like to preach and God gave me a big mouth. So that just works. That just works. I like those things. I love being able to look at a command of God and that's my response. Ding, winner for Grant. There are some other commands that are a little bit more difficult. Turn the other cheek. When somebody hurts me, I want to turn a cheek to them, but it's not the one Jesus is referring to, okay? Don't think about that too long or you'll sin, all right? Don't let any reckless words come out of your mouth. That's a tough one for me because... The same mouth that preaches the gospel is the same big mouth that says very bad things when there's no Christ the King people around, okay? Bad things, evil things, hurtful things. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't like that one. I preached at Central Christian Church in Las Vegas a couple years back. In my message, I made a comment about how beautiful I thought it was that kids were attracted to Jesus. I asked people, I said, just picture him sitting on the side of a hill and all the adults are buzzing around and God just gathers all of the kids around him and how, I said, just picture him touching the kids and being connected with them. A lady who's very antagonistic towards Central and their ministry wrote a blog the next week entitled, Grant Fishbook Encourages Pedophilia. Claims that Jesus touched children. Didn't want to pray for her. Most certainly did not want to love her. Took me a long time to get to the place where I could pray, Jesus, can you heal whatever hurt is in her heart that would cause her to take a simple statement like that and twist it into something that ugly. Following some of God's commands are easy. Some of them a little more difficult. When I read to you Psalm 119, where it talks about, I love your statutes, I love your commands, they bring me great joy, all of my ways are known to you, I guarantee you, every Christian in the room was like, yes, yes, that's good, amen. Are you sure? 
about the ones that are not so easy? Here's my assertion for the weekend. You're probably not going to like it. I like the fact that God made it snow this weekend, kind of sort it all out. I'm not going to try and overthink that, but I think there's an amazing irony here today, okay? Here's my assertion. My spiritual maturity is directly proportional to the law of God I obey the least. Let me say that again. My spiritual maturity is directly proportional to the law of God I obey the least, okay? It's not the easy ones that determine my spiritual maturity. It's my lack of follow-through in the commands that I want to ignore, dispute, push away, argue, or find a personal loophole for. It's not the ones that I do easily. That's not what makes me a spiritual mature person. It's where I find myself on that lowest rung. So I'm going to walk into an area that's so misunderstood that many of you are going to shut down the second I start talking about it. You're going to shut down because of guilt, misperception, or fear. I want you to consider hanging with me, okay? Most of you that are here, especially at this service, are veteran believers. If you're just here investigating the claims of Christianity, trying to figure that out, here's what I want to to invite you to do. This is not for you if you are not a Christian. And you can spend the next 28 minutes enjoying the fact that all the rest of the people in the room are probably going to squirm just a little bit about what we're going to talk about. Okay? So you get a front row seat because we're going to talk about a very, very difficult area. I want to consider you to consider hanging with me because all I'm going to do is this, okay? I'm going to tell you what the Bible says and then I'm going to ask one single question, obedient or not. Okay? I'm going to start with this statement. In my experience, the law of God that's most challenging for believers is in the area of finances. This is the tough one. The reality is many of us don't know what God actually says about the topic of money. Or we've seen the topic be so massively misused by the church. Or we've got a perception that the only thing the church cares about is money. Because every time you turn on your TV, there's some guy in a really bad suit with really bad hair saying that if you'll send in a love offering that God's going to bless you. Or maybe you feel guilty because you're so broke and talking about it just makes you feel even worse. Or, or for some of us, we know exactly what God says about this topic. The reality is we're just disobedient and we don't like it when somebody tells us the truth because it makes us uncomfortable. So here's the truth. I'm just going to lay it out for you. The Bible promised if we love and follow God's commands, even the ones that we don't like, that he will keep us from falling and stumbling. Don't you think it would be important to at least know what God says before we go jumping to a whole bunch of wrong conclusions? So before I even dive into it, let me give you all of my caveats, okay? I'm not doing a whole series on money. This is a one-shot deal. For those of you who are brave enough to come through the snow, God bless the podcast this week, right? You can join me in praying that. It's a one-shot deal. The church is not in financial trouble. We don't talk about money every week. And the reason we're talking about it this week is because Jesus talked about this topic more than heaven or hell. So he actually thought it must be a pretty big deal. And all I'm going to ask you to consider is this. The second I start talking about it, are you here? Or are you here? And the answer to that question is not between me and you. It's between you and the God that blessed you. Okay? You ready? You with me? Everybody's quiet. I've got a few head nods. Here we go. Okay? This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches stewardship. 
1 Corinthians 4 says, now it is required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. One of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves is that everything we have is our stuff. The Bible teaches differently. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. All the world and everything in it belongs to God. So if you say that all of this stuff is mine, or you put a label on something like that, you're not being biblical, okay? We tell ourselves it's our stuff because our stuff gives us security, and that makes us feel safe. Here's the problem. According to the Bible, it ain't your stuff. Not very good English, but it's true. It ain't your stuff. It's God's stuff. You're not an owner of anything. You're a steward of what God's given you, and you're going to answer for your stewardship to its rightful owner, and all of the stuff actually belongs to an owner and his name is God. When I acknowledge that none of my stuff is actually mine, that helps me because I'm less tempted to make stuff the focal point of my life. Stewardship asks basically two questions. Where should I invest my life and how do I make it count for its rightful owner? Let's answer the first question, okay? What should I invest my life in? There are two things in the world that are eternal, the word of God and people. So I should be investing in those two areas. I make my life count the most when I'm obedient to the word of God and when I point people towards Jesus. So that should be my sole focus, not on accumulating stuff. When my focus is on accumulating more stuff, then I start focusing on what it really means to be comfortable. And then I start focusing on how much more stuff I need to have than that person in order to make myself more validated And then I start understanding that I think my status is dictated by the number of toys that I have. And pretty soon my security becomes dictated by this bottom line. And I start buying into the biggest lie that you'll find in our culture. That stuff equals happiness. When my focus is on that, and I buy that lie, I am no different than a man in Scripture that Jesus told a story about. Jesus told a story about a guy who had so much stuff that he had to tear down his storage units in order to big a bigger storage unit in order to be able to hold all of his stuff. And one night, God shows up and says, Mr. Storage Unit, hate to disappoint you, but tonight your soul will be required of you. God had a name for him. God said that that man who focused on accumulating stuff was not rich towards God and he... God actually called him a four-letter word. Anybody know what it was? A fool. Don't be foolish. Be what you were created to be. Be a steward of God's trust. The Bible says we're to be stewards and that God has an expectation that our stewardship is going to be marked by something. It's the next blank in your outline. That our stewardship will be marked by generosity. Let me tell you the story about the church of Corinth. Church of Corinth was broke. They were broke. Many had lost everything simply because they were following Jesus. They were starving, and yet God gave them an opportunity to bless a church that actually had less than they did. And their pastor, a guy by the name of Paul, actually wrote these words about his own church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He said this, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their own ability. I want you to notice a couple words there. Severe trial, extreme poverty. I use those two things as my excuses. I'm too broke to do what God asked me to do. 
I'm going through a rough time right now. I can't afford to do this. Paul said the Corinthians, out of extreme poverty and a severe trial, their response was not to stop trusting God. They actually increased their trust and became even more generous. Crazy, isn't it? Generosity is assumed by God about his people. Why are we supposed to be generous? Let me give you one reason. It's because you serve a generous God. I mean, you don't think you're blessed? Let me break that paradigm. If you slept under a roof last night and had one meal in the last 24 hours, you are in the fourth highest percentile of the richest people on earth. And I didn't even talk about your iPhone or your Xbox. Do we understand how rich we are, how blessed we are? See, here's the problem with us. We've just got a jacked up scale. We just don't understand what a need is and what a want is. And so we get all messed up with this kind of stuff. I want to encourage you. Don't ever feel guilty about your iPhone and your Xbox. Just be grateful and make sure you know where they came from. God is generous. And he wants to be generous in return. You need some more proof? When God had an opportunity to to lavish blessing upon us, he gave the very best that he had, his own son, Jesus Christ. The very best that he had. How could we call ourselves followers of God and give anything less? Here's how it gets practical, okay? We're supposed to be generous through three basic areas. The first area is tithes, okay? Here it comes. A tithe is when you give the first tenth of your income back to God. Why 10%? I have no idea why God put that there, but I will tell you something. 10% does not mean God's your waiter. Think about that for a second. He's not here to serve you. We are here to serve him. He's the rightful owner, so we need to get that in perspective. So here's God's master financial plan. It's unbelievably complex. I will do my best to make it as simple as possible. Those of you who have been here before know exactly where I'm going. This is God's master financial plan. For every 10 of these, they're ones, just so you know, okay? For every 10 of these that God gives you, as a steward, you're supposed to give one of them back to him. I lost 90% of the crowd. I'm going to do it one more time, okay? I know this is deep, but I'll just... For every 10 of these that God gives you, you're supposed to give one of them back to him, remembering this. God's 10 is still bigger than your 90. Can I get an amen on that? God's 10 still bigger than your 90 because he's the one that can multiply and make things bigger even when they look really, really small and insignificant. See, this is just about trust and faithfulness. That's what this is all about. It's actually not a numeric equation at all. Proverbs 3 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. I'm going to remind you again, God gave his best. Don't you believe he deserves the best in return? And this is what I love about God. He never asked me to do anything he didn't do first. He asked me for my best based on the fact that he asked or gave, presented his best at the beginning. Here's Malachi 3. Like it or not, here it comes. You ready? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will be not enough room to store it. This is the only time in all of Scripture where God dares us to try Him. Just try. 
do this and see what happens. If you've been a Christ the King, you've heard me say this before. For the first nine years of being a pastor, I was disobedient to this. I thought, God has my time. God's got my talent. He better keep his hands off my money. And I could never figure out why Laurel and I could never, ever, ever make ends meet. God says, what I want you to do. You got an issue with this? Don't write me a letter. You probably need to pray. So in the area of tithes, secondly, in the area of offerings. Offerings are above and beyond giving opportunities that we have to thank God for his blessing. It could be causes. It could be special needs. Many of you got involved in the Christ the King blessing this year. You did something above and beyond your tithe in order to be somebody else's miracle. Over $65,000 that we're going to give away to people who just need help. You may give an offering to a person in need. There's one more type. Okay, tithes, offerings, and then scripture talks about alms. Proverbs 22 verse 9 says this, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. I love that we have a food bank ministry. Every single week, hundreds of people come and we give them food, not for the sake of just feeding their belly, but so that we can show them what it looks like when God's people love. We want to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. The reason we do that is because of this. Scripture says the way that we treat the poor, the least of these, is exactly the same way we treat him. So we have a responsibility. Stewardship, generosity, and then the Bible teaches this, often forgotten. It teaches consistency. 2 Corinthians 16 says this, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. You've probably heard this before. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail, okay? If you fail to plan out a way of making giving a consistent and regular part of your life, I will promise you something. It just won't happen. That's why Laurel and I use the online giving deal on our website. It just comes out automatically. My paycheck goes in automatically it goes straight to God. Before we pay anybody else, we try to be obedient to God's commands. I'll tell you why this is really cool. Number one, it keeps us consistent. Number two, it benefits the church because when I give online, it, 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 they don't have to pay anybody to process it. It just goes straight in and the church can count on the fact that it's going to be there every single week. This is what I've learned about consistency. Consistency defies distractions. So if you want to ensure regular discipline, you've just got to find a way to make it regular. We're creatures of habit. This is one of those habits that, that's hard to get into because everything in your human nature is going to pull you in this direction. Okay, here's the next one. The Bible teaches consistency and then it teaches responsibility. Luke 12, 48 says this, For everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I call this Spider-Man theology, Okay. With great power comes great responsibility. If you've ever watched that movie, Spider-Man stole it from Jesus, just so you know, okay? Over and over in Scripture, Jesus tells stories about people who served a master that blessed them. He gave them a blessing. Some of them squandered his trust, doing whatever it was that they wanted to do with it. 
Some of them hid his trust and did absolutely nothing with it. But some of them took that little bit, did what their master asked them to, and the master blessed it and it multiplied itself over and over and over again. So here's a question. Are you handling God's trust to you responsibly and biblically or not? Right now, can you say, when it comes to this command, or would you have to be honest and be on the other side? The reality is most people in America are not even close to being able to ring that bell. Just, just being honest. Let me tell you the reason why. Here's the major financial stumbles that most people fall into. The first one's this, too much car. We just think that somehow we're equated with the four wheels that we drive. And so we want to make a statement and we get caught up just, you know, buying too much car. I've watched my son struggle with this. For some reason, I don't know why, I never made this mistake. I started off, my first car was a 1978 Honda Civic. Hardly anything worked on it. The best thing about that car was the fact that the body was the same color as duct tape. So body work was really, really easy. The heater didn't work. The window, nothing worked in this car. But that thing went forever. Made it all the way through college. When I came here to Christ the King, I upgraded. I upgraded from my 78 Honda Civic to a Geo Metro. It was scary. The Geo Metro, that's the only car that's ever been created that you can actually hit a pedestrian with and lose. I mean, it's like driving a Coke can. It's awful. But the cool thing about it was this. $11 would fill it to the brim and I could go for a whole month. It was a great stewardship car. And a guy asked me the other day, I actually picked him up for lunch and he was surprised. He thought I drove a Lexus. Are you kidding me? I drive an 05 Trailblazer. That's the newest car in the whole Fishbook fleet. And most of the electronics stopped working 10,000 miles ago. But you know, amen, yeah. But it keeps going. We make a problem, and we, a problem for ourselves when we buy too much car. You take too much car as a college student, and then when you get married and you buy too much house, that causes big problems. Let me ask you a question when it comes to houses. Don't feel guilty about it. Just a question. Do you really need rooms you don't use? Really? What do you usually do with rooms you don't use? You fill them with stuff that you don't use either. That's the reality of it. Too much car and too much house equals something. It equals too much debt. And Scripture warns against debt. I've been doing all kinds of research. I've heard numbers of credit card debt, national averages, anywhere between $8,000 and $54,000 a person. You take that much credit card debt at 18% and make the bare minimum payment, I'll tell you what that equals. That equals pain. You're never going to get out of that hole. Too much car, too much house, too much debt. You take that and you wrap it in something called not enough foresight. And that's a problem. This is a bad word for a lot of people, but it's a good word according to Scripture. It's called a budget. The Bible actually advocates planning. The book of Proverbs, written by the richest man in human history, said, Know the condition of your flocks and your herds. Know where your money's going. Make a plan. So that you don't end up going in the wrong direction. And finally, there's a problem with not enough saving. Book of Proverbs written by the, like I just said, the richest man in human history said this. This is a modern translation. I love the wording. A wise man saves 
but a stupid man spends everything he has. How's that for being politically incorrect? The question is really responsibility. Do you live within your financial means or do your financial means dictate everything you have to do or don't do? Here's the final blank in your outline. The Bible also teaches this. It teaches about eternity. Matthew 6 says this, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin can destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Bible says I want you to think eternally about your finances and make investments that are going to, cause, that are going to be rewarded in heaven. I do this every year that I talk about this. This is a piece of leather filled with paper and plastic. I've seen parents choose this over their children. I've seen husbands and wives break a covenant that they made before God in order to get a bigger piece of what's inside of this. I've seen business partners not speak to each other for over two decades because they were fighting a tug-of-war over this. Can I tell you something about this? At the end of the world, it's going to burn with all the rest of the toys. And our obedience is the only thing that's going to make itself through that fire. You know, back in 2008, when the markets crashed and everybody freaked out, we actually learned some really cool lessons. A lot of people lost a lot of money, but we learned a few things. We learned that going for a walk with our family was actually a pretty cool thing to do on a Friday night. We learned that taking a brown bag lunch to work and having a conversation with your coworker was actually a really cool alternative to being able to go to a restaurant and have a power lunch. We learned that a staycation in Whatcom County was actually a really, really cool option. We learned that our 1998 Honda with 180,000 miles, if treated right, could go another 100,000 miles. We learned that all of our security was not nearly as secure as we would have believed. And we learned that Matthew 6 was actually true. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I know some people who look back at 2008 and say, but granted, it didn't work. It didn't work. I knew a lot of godly people who got caught in the collapse. Some people will say, God's plan doesn't work. They were Christians. They were tithing. They were generous. And they lost everything. They stumbled like the rest of us. You know, and I do know people who were generous, consistent, responsible stewards who lost a lot of earthly stuff. But here was the deal. God never lost them. And they never lost their faith and their trust. Some of them were blessed with less. But the one thing they didn't lose was their eternal treasure in heaven. So we've gone full circle. Let's come back to Psalm 119. When it comes to this command, where's your spiritual maturity, believer? Can you honestly say this? I mean, when I read it the first time, there were people nodding and yes. Yeah, I love Psalm 119. Now that we've talked about this topic, let me read it again. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous law. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. 
I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I follow your commands. I obey your statutes because I love them greatly. Can you say that you love this one? Do you love it? Or is this one of those ones where it's kind of like, Just a question. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and this day. Thank you for those who are here. In order to hear your message, Lord, may we celebrate the truth of God's word, even when the commands are difficult for us. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient. I pray that we would never lose sight of the eternal investment that God has called us to make. Father, would you bless those who are obedient, and Lord, may you lead those who are disobedient in the way of obedience, simply because you don't ever want them to stumble. So God, we give you praise and glory today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.